All right, so grab your Bibles. We're going to just continue where we left off. And in God's providence, it's amazing that we left off here because you're going to see how this ties into uh, our current cultural moment here. But we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Open your Bible, grab your Bible app, and uh, we're going to look at verses 9 through 12 together. Now, uh, have you ever thought about what your life would be by the numbers? By that I mean... Um, how much time do you spend doing X or Y, right? Um, the Huffington Post did, a, uh, did an article a few years ago where they, where they did just that. They looked at the average lifespan of 79 years. They broke it down. I'm not going to give you the full break- breakdown, but it's fascinating to see where we spend our time, right? So the average person, if you live to be 79 years, is going to sleep for 26 years, for 26 years. The average person is going to spend seven years trying to go to sleep. Uh, You are going to spend eight years and four months watching TV. That's just kind of depressing. You're going to spend three years and counting, apparently, on social media. We will spend four and a half years eating. I wish it was more. We're going to spend 3.1 years on vacation. Uh, We're going to spend one year and one month being romantic. I don't know what that means, but there it is. You're going to spend one year of your life socializing, socializing. Ladies, ready for this? You're going to spend 136 days of your life getting ready for something. (laughs) Just getting ready, right? Guys, we're going to spend 46. (laughs) And now life makes sense, right? But we will spend 13 years at work. 13 years. Now, so that means that outside of sleep, the place we will spend the most time doing, the thing we will do more than anything, is working. So it shouldn't be a surprise when we come to Scripture. Scripture has something to say about our work, uh, that, that Paul has something to say about our work. Now, let me remind you kind of where we are. When we started 1 Corinthians chapter 4 last week, we talked about how how Paul is basically saying, okay, Thessalonians, let me show you how you can please God. This is the cry of every genuine Christian heart. I want to please God. And what Paul says is, all right, you can please him. You can please him first in being holy. You can please him in your sanctification. But Paul is going to move today, and he talked about sexual purity and all that we talked about last week. Paul moves today and says, I'm going to show you how you can please God at work. Now, what's surprising is the way Paul gets there. He gets there in a very a way that I would have never thought to start talking about work. And let me, again, let me remind you kind of context. Paul's gone to Thessalonica. We've said this a hundred times, right? He leaves there. He's worried about him. So he sends Timothy. Timothy goes, comes back to him. He's got a great report. Their faith is thriving. Everything's going well. Uh, well, I'm amazed. Praise God for his goodness to them. Their faith is resounding around the area. But apparently, Timothy comes back and says to Paul, Paul, there's a couple issues you need to be aware of. And probably Paul hears a letter from the church in Thessalonica asking you certain questions. And you're going to see that today. In fact, in in Thessalonians, you'll see this, this phrase, now concerning, now concerning. This is Paul responding to their questions. We have this question about, we've got a question about. So they start off and say, we have a question about what? 
Okay, so that's where we find ourselves. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. And as we normally do, stand with me and let's read this together. All right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now, concerning brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are all doing to all the brothers uh, throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to, do, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word you may be seated. Okay, so how to please God. So last week, he said, you please him by holy living. Holy living looks like sexual purity. I'm giving you an example, Paul says, a pretty key example of what it looks like. But I think Paul would say that's not the only way to please God. In fact, it may not be the best way to please God because you could be totally pure and completely unloving, right? And he's going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter Chapter 13, men, if I'm, if I'm all these things, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. So, so Paul says, okay, I, I want to talk to you about this. So, so now watch how he does this. This is what's surprising. Apparently, they write to him and say, hey, what's our, what's our commitment to one another? What, what are we supposed to be doing? Paul's going to go, okay, let's talk about that, and then I'm going to show you a really unique way that it works itself out. So last week what we did is we said, here's how to please God generally, and then here's how to please God specifically. We're gonna do the exact same thing today, okay? So that's kind of our outline. How to please God generally. So this is where he starts, verses nine and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing uh, to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more. Okay, so uh, like pleasing God, one mark of a genuine Christian, we're going to see this in Paul, we're going to see it in John, is what? Love for other people. Jesus is going to say, how will they know you're my disciples? They'll know because you have love for one another. Now, Foothill Church, like this is the, maybe the greatest time in history that we've ever had to genuinely love one another to genuinely be there for each other. Not to say I have warm feelings for other people at church, but to actually say, I'm going to show my love for them. Now look at what Paul says. Paul tells them, just like he did about holiness and sexual purity, he basically says to them, you're already doing this. You don't need to be taught about this because, he says, you've been taught by God. You see that? Verse, verse, uh, verse 9. That's a, that's a really interesting thing. How have they been taught by God? Well, maybe what Paul means there is that I came to you, I'm an apostle, I was taught the gospel by Jesus Christ, so I'm teaching you, and that's you being taught by God. Perhaps. Um, I think there's maybe a more foundational way. Think about what it means to be a Christian. You and I became Christians because what? We might say it this way. We finally saw the love of God. We finally saw that there was a love that was being, that was coming to you and I, that God's love reconciled us and redeemed us, okay? 
So if I go to Titus, Paul writes to his young protege, Titus, Titus chapter 3, and he says this to Titus, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Then look at this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So it's though Paul's saying, man, Jesus Christ came, he revealed himself to us, I finally saw the love of God manifest in Jesus, and it saved me. That's what happens to everybody. We are saved through the, the, the love of God. But then what happens? What happens is I become a Christian, you become a Christian, and the Bible says, Paul's actually going to say to the Romans, that the love of God, Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What a picture, right? So now I've got the love of God being poured into me, and, and, and that's now residing within me. So John says it this way. We could sort of take those and say, okay, God, God showed us his love. He put his love in us. And 1 John chapter 4 says, we now love because he first loved us. You see this? So this is the way the love of God comes out. So when he says, when Paul says to them, look, you don't need to be taught about this because you've been taught by God. It's his way of talking about, we might say, the new covenant. Man, the spirit is now inside of you. Like the, the, the work of God coming into you and, and, and now I love others because it's an overflow of the love that God has for me, that he's shown me, that he's poured into my heart. See that? See, in fact... Our love for each other and our love for God are inextricably, if I can use this word, intertwined. Do you, do you follow me there? Uh, Paul, John's going to say it this way. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, many of you know this, right? Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Do you hear this? Do you hear all these things? It's like, like you can't say I love, but I, I, I love other people, or, or I love God, but I, I, don't really, I don't really have any sort of love for, for, for my fellow believer. And this is where it's going to be tested, Foothill. Like, here's a moment. Is the love of God real in our hearts? And Paul says, look at it. In fact, we would say this, if you look at 1 John, I mean, this is one of the tests of genuine salvation. There's several of them in the book of 1 John. One of them we might call the love test. Do I love other believers? Am I reaching out? I'm not talking about do you have warm feelings. Are you willing to sacrifice yourself? I mean, you see how this is amazing that we're doing this this week, that this is what, what God in his providence would have us be looking at, Okay. So now, Paul says, uh, Timothy comes back and goes, this is what's happening. He says, for that, and look at verse 10, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So he says, you're loving, you've been taught by God, and you're doing that. Now let's ask the question, how are they doing that throughout Macedonia? Well, he told us in chapter 1 that, that man, your faith is kind of ringing out. So, so you're loving this region by, by sharing the gospel. Um, I don't think it's, it's, it's implying too much to suggest that, that Thessaloniki or Thessalonica was a, 
was this major trade city, no doubt. There are Christians, there are people who are becoming Christians because they have the gospel shared with them when they come to town. No doubt there is hospitality happening. They're opening their homes. You can come in and stay with us. No doubt they're caring for the needs of others. Paul says this is happening throughout Macedonia. You're going and you're caring for each other. What a picture of the New Testament church. Foothill, what if we would be a church filled with Jesus-loving people who loved each other? Where it would be said, you don't have to be taught about this. God's love is so obviously evident in your life that you're just loving one another. You're caring. You're encouraging. And here's what I love. Paul, Paul doesn't just start off and go, man, now concerning, listen, I got to talk to you, you guys are blowing it. No, he encourages them. He says, let me affirm you in some things that I see you're doing really well. So Foothill Church, let me affirm you. I just got a, a, a note this week from somebody that was, that was talking about a, 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 a woman in our church um, who has been coming for maybe a couple of years and, and she was sharing with somebody else. She said, um, since coming to Foothill Church, I've never felt alone. Like here, here's, a, here's a single woman, divorced, and yet she's saying, I'm so grateful because the people of Foothill Church have loved me. Like that kind of thing. I'm hearing about meal trains, check-ins. Listen, now is the time, right? Now is the time, Foothill, that we would be, you know, being generous. We'd be checking in. We would be looking and saying, not hoarding, but giving away, loving. I, I got another note from a friend who said, man, I, he just admitted, I was one of those that saw this coming several weeks back and started stockpiling. So he's got all the toilet paper, apparently. And, and I got medicines, and I got all this stuff. And man, me and my family were self-contained. He said, I woke up in the morning, like 3 in the morning the other night, and he said, I was fearful, I was afraid, and I felt like this, the Lord said, don't be afraid. And you don't have to hoard. And he said, so, he says, I've decided. I think I know why God had me do this. I've stockpiled for the sake of my neighbors. He's now going to knock on all the neighbors' doors, old people, and, and, and say, do you need anything? We're here. You need diapers? You need, listen, Fiddle Church, I want to encourage you all to do that. That every one of us would be willing to share with those in need, to be that kind of people that love. I'm so encouraged that, we, that we're seeing this. Now, look what Paul says. Have they arrived? Paul says, you're doing this, but keep doing it. See how he says that? You're doing this. Now just keep doing it. End of verse 10, more and more. So we never arrive, right? We'll never get there and go. We, you know, Paul doesn't say, man, way to go, guys. Just kind of stay the course. No, he says, no, expand it. Make it bigger. Figure out creative ways. Build on what you're doing. Find ways, more ways, innovative ways to love each other. This is why I think this is so amazing, right? Now we have this opportunity to say in this time, what are some innovative ways that we can love each other? So what this means is the Christian life is never static, especially right now. And it's not, and the reason is because there's always room to grow in these areas, especially in our love for one another. Um, and you know why that is? 
Because we know from Scripture, we know from Ephesians, that we can't comprehend the height and the depth and the width and the length of the love of God. Because God is love. We sing that, how deep the Father's love for us. I mean, how kind, beyond all measure. We can't even measure it, right? And so he says, because of that, then we're not ever going to plumb the depths of that. So there's always room for us to grow. And what an opportunity, what a tangible golden opportunity we're given right now at this cultural moment to, to grow in this area of our love for one another. Now, watch what Paul does. That's, this is how to please God generally. How do we please God generally? We love each other. But then look what he does, how to please God specifically. And this is the surprising move. Look at verse 11. He says, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. Now look at verse 11 with me. And if you're looking at the English Standard Version that I'm preaching from, you're going to notice verse 10 ends with a comma. Verse 11 starts with an and. In other words, there is no period after uh, verse 10. This is one continuous thought. This is Paul. Now, here's what I think is happening. Paul gets a letter back from the church in Thessalonica saying, okay, what is it? What is our relationship to one another? What is our duty toward one another? Paul said, I don't need to teach you about that. Do this more and more. I mean, you guys are, you're killing it. Now kill it more and more. Then he goes, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to talk about an issue that Timothy has talked to me about. And the issue is work. The issue is, we might say, their work ethic. And so let's tie these two together. What Paul is telling us here is that one of the ways we love God more and more, one of the ways we express our love for one another is by working for a living. This is a really, again, I just would never have gone there. I never would have thought of that, right? So, it's, it's, it, it, so this is a very unexpected move for Paul. But now watch how he does this because he's going to give them three admonitions, okay? And they're all really dealing with, with work. And I'll show you why I'm saying that here in a moment. Okay, the first thing, notice this, verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly. This is a very ironic statement, in other words, that this be your motivation, this be your ambition. You'd have this massive ambition to live quietly. And now how countercultural is that, right? Like that, that is not anything we would hear in the 21st century. Um, um, we, we read as a staff a few months ago, we read a book by Julie Candless called Theology of the Ordinary. And it's a great little, little tiny book. And in this, she, she opens it by talking about her kids having moved back from Scotland with her and her husband. They, they were driving around in America, and they noticed everything's big. Mom and Dad, why, why is everything the best, the biggest, you know, the brightest? It's, that's that's kind of how we advertise. She goes, you know, I had never noticed it because a fish doesn't notice the water they're swimming in, right? I didn't really get that. And then I thought, you know, they're right. She surveys sort of modern evangelicalism and looks and says, modern Christianity is so extreme. And she starts commenting about how, look at all the books that are flying off the shelf. Books like radical, and crazy love, right? And relentless and passion. She, she says, I found it so ironic that at least the year she wrote it, she said the biggest conference, a Christian conference in the nation at the time was a, passion, a, 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 a conference called Passion. Many of you know it. And it was held at the Infinite Energy Center, right? So... <laughs> So she's, she's like, this, is, this, seems, this seems wild, right? 
Because it's as though we're not fully living the Christian life to the fullest unless it's bigger and better and more radical and X Games-like. Um, it's as though we need something to always keep our attention so we're never bored. Young people, right? It's got, I've got to chase my passion, find my purpose, shoot for the stars, never settle. We want everything. It took our parents 40 years to get the day after graduation. We want the highs of super spirituality. We don't want the day-to-day grind of ordinary sanctification and faithfulness. We want dramatic change. We don't want slow growth. We want to change the world because it takes far too long to change our own hearts. Um, I mean, listen, who wants to labor in obscurity when you can come out with a bang and everybody can see you and you do something radical. Michael Horton in his book, Ordinary, he writes this. My concern is that the activist impulse at the heart of evangelicalism can put an enormous burden on people to do big things when what we need most right now is to do the ordinary things better. That's a prophetic word. We can miss God in the daily stuff, looking for the extraordinary moment outside of his word and conversation with him in daily prayer, and especially in the weekly gathering. If we were serious about these ordinary means of grace, I'm convinced the church would have a much stronger witness in the world today. See this? Just ordinary, faithful, pedestrian, normal living. So Paul says, aspire to live quietly. Julie Candless said, I, uh, how many conferences have you attended that emphasize that command? That just doesn't happen, right? Now why? Because it's not radical enough. It's too ordinary. It's too normal. It's too mundane. I think there's another reason, though, that Paul tells us to live Quietly. That word quietly is actually used by Paul elsewhere to talk about living, um, how we behave, we might say, during Sabbath. So it has this idea of restfulness, non-anxious. <laughs> Again, I'm amazed we're doing this this week, right? Because here's, here's Paul saying, You should live quietly. You know why you should live quietly? You know why you should live restfully? You know why you should live non-anxious? Because no one else is. What a radically counter-cultural concept that in the midst of the time we were, were going through is we were quiet, we were restful, we weren't feeling anxious all the time because we just realized we don't have to fear. God's with us. Um, Michelle told me this week, she came home from women's prayer and said somebody, somebody was talking about a, a, a friend of theirs that had gone to Costco. And um, while she's in the line at Costco, she looks around and notices that all the hoarders had filled up their carts with the, you know, the, the, the toilet paper and the paper towels and all the dry goods and emergency supplies and all this stuff and just brimming. And she said she finally just was like walked up and, and felt like the Lord impressed her just to walk up and say, are you afraid of dying? And people were like, yes, yes. And she was able to pray with them and share the gospel. There's hope in that. 
we don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be afraid. Our God is with us, right? And so we can, we can walk in the midst of this culture. So rather than hoarding, what if we were sacrificing? Rather than being restless, we're restful. Now, by the way, do you see the link with how that would help you love others? Because there's no way you will love anybody when all you can be anxious about is yourself. When you're worried about day to day to day. What's going to happen in the world? What's going to happen in November? What's going to happen next week? Is the virus, whatever it is. I can't even think about your needs. I'm too anxiety ridden over mine. And Paul says, aspire. Make it your ambition. Like, like when you think about that, isn't that really what you want? I want my heart to be quiet before God. That's beautiful. Now, second thing he says, and I'll be quicker here, he says that you'd mind your own affairs. And I think what he's getting at here is that not, you know, I don't care about other people. We've just said, I don't think that's it at all. I think what he's saying is, look, I stay busy with my own matters. I'm worried about my own holiness, my own quietude, my own restlessness, my own aspirations. I'm not looking in judgment upon you. Hear me again. You can't love someone else that you're standing in judgment over. You can't look at them and say, I care for you and I want to help you when all you're doing is standing in judgment and saying, you know what, you're too restless, you're too anxious, you're, you're, you're striving too hard. Paul says, you strive to live quietly, like make that your aspiration, but then mind your own affairs. Don't stand in judgment over other people. And then finally he says, work with your hands. Now this is fascinating to me. Uh, why would Paul say work with your hands? Make a point to not just say and work, work for a living. Well, I think there's two reasons. Number one, and, and maybe very prominently in the culture, and this is where I'm going to kind of tie these together, um, manual labor was looked down on in the Roman Empire. It was degrading. It was thought to be beneath people. A person of dignity simply wouldn't labor with their hands. Think of, think of Downton Abbey and the Crowleys, right? I mean, they just wouldn't deign to do anything. They have to sit around and read things to each other. Otherwise, it's undignified. Paul looks at that and says, no. No, that must not be. Because what he notices is he says, man, I want you to see that all honest work has nobility. I don't care what the Roman Empire says. I'm a tent maker, Paul would say. Jesus was a carpenter. There is meaning in all of it. So, so one of the issues, no doubt, that Timothy noticed when he went to Thessalonica and as he had a chance to survey what was going on, and you're going to see this mentioned four times, you're going to see the word idol, I-D-L-E, not I-D-O-L, I-D-L-E, idleness. He's going to mention that four times in First and Second Thessalonians. So this is obviously a problem. In fact, Paul's going to say in Second Thessalonians, man, if you don't work, if you're idle, you don't eat. So he comes back and he tells them, and Paul says, okay, I'm going to seize on this opportunity to talk about them loving each other and not being idle. Now, let's make sure we're clear in our terms. Being idle is not the same thing as being unemployed. Someone who's unemployed, we could say it this way, an unemployed person is somebody who wants to work but can't. An idle person is a person who can work but won't. 
You follow that? They won't. They're saying, that's beneath me, or I'm going to live off the public doles, whatever form that takes, right? So I don't think, again, this is not a, a, a knock on our welfare system, only if I take advantage of it and I'm able-bodied, right? So Paul's saying, no, no, I'm not talking about unemployment. I'm talking about idleness. So he says, work with your hands. Don't be lazy. All work has value. Everybody doing whatever they're doing. If it's an honest day's work, it is valuable in God's eyes. And he says that one of the ways we love each other is by what? By working with our hands. Now, how does those two connect? Because, because when I work, I'm not an undue financial pressure, you know, I'm not putting undue financial pressure on you. I'm not making, I'm not living off of your generosity because I refuse to work. So Paul says there's dignity, there's value in working for a living. But I think there's a second reason he talks about working with her hands. I think there's an imagery that Paul doesn't want us to miss. Okay, remember, Paul is thoroughly steeped in the Old Testament. He's a Jew, right? He's a rabbi. He, he knows his Bible. And if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when, when God makes man, what does God do when he reaches the pinnacle of his creation and makes mankind? He actually gets down in the dirt and works with his hands. What's, what's happening there? He's taking this material, we might say, the dirt, and forming it into something. He's taking chaos and creating order, right? He's putting matter in, its, in his hands and forming something useful. Now, isn't that every kind of work you can think of? A musician takes notes that mean nothing until he works with his hands and his mind to put those onto a piece of paper. An artist takes all the mediums and tools and things of artistry and paints and sculpts and draws and writes, all these things, right? Letters are just out there. Words are just out there until the writer comes and crafts them into something. They're just words until a lawyer creates a contract, it's just, it's just stuff until a teacher takes and organizes it so a student can learn. You see what I mean? Every single job. It's, it's, this is what the chicken sandwich maker does. They take these elements, put them together, and make us where we can't stop eating it, right? This is exactly what's happening. I'm taking all these ingredients, a contractor, an investor, we could go on and on, and all of this for the sake of human flourishing, reflecting our creator in what he did. I mean, think about, think about things like roadways. Think about sewer systems. Think about water pipings that go underneath our houses and out into the street. Somebody had to conceive of those, Somebody had to plan for those. Somebody had to build those. Someone's got to uh, clean those. Somebody has to repair those. How different would our lives be if some of those things weren't true? How long would it take us to get to LA? <laughs> right? How many of our cars could actually do what needed to be done if there were no roadways? 
How many of us would want to live in a world with no sewer system? Right? All for human flourishing. They get down, they work with their hands. So this is, this is, this is Paul saying, we love people by doing really ordinary things in ordinary ways because all of them reflect a creator God. We help, they, they give us the ability to help our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors. We can care for them, we can provide them, we can help them flourish. This is how we love God. So, so this is what Paul says. Notice what he says in verse 7, or ver, ver, verse, uh, verse 12. All the way at the end, he says, so that, so here's why. So that you walk properly before outsiders and you're dependent upon no one. So that you do all these things. You, you aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and work with your hands so that you can be a blessing to the culture you find yourself in, so that you can provide for their needs, so that you don't have to be dependent upon them. So people might look at us, Foothill Church, might look at us, Christian, and say, man, I wish I had more of them. I wish our neighborhood had more of them. They're diligent, faithful people because now we can care for them. And let's be a church. Let's, let's, let's seize this cultural opportunity to love each other like we've never loved before, to work hard because God is placing us in a place where we can love one another, we can care for our neighbors, we can sacrifice for them all for the sake of his name and for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the timeliness of it. And I just want to pray right now that we would be a church that would rise up, that love would not just be this... Um, this idea, this, this theoretical concept. But Lord, this would be a time when we would see it expressed in really tangible ways toward one another, toward our neighbors, where they would see us loving them through diligently laboring on their behalf. And I pray we'd be the kind of workers, Lord, the kind of workers that, don't, that, 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 that aren't idle, that work diligently, that put in an honest day's labor, Lord, that I know for some there's a temptation uh, to, to, to use these few weeks just so they don't have to work. I, I know there's people who are legitimately scared, but God, I, I, I know there's certainly people in their heart that would say, wow, I get two weeks vacation, I don't have to work. That God, they'd find themselves, they'd find themselves um, oriented toward how they can work toward flourishing around them and for the good of their neighbors. And Lord, I pray, I pray for anybody who's watching right now who, who doesn't uh, have a relationship with you. They've heard about the love of God. The love of God is shed abroad in their hearts through Jesus Christ. And I pray today would be a day when they would, they would turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ and, uh, and be saved, Lord. Let that happen, we pray. For the glory of your name, for the fame of your son, Jesus, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.